All right, everybody, welcome to season seven of Angel. Last season, we talked to first-time fund managers, right? That was our opportunity to have a really uh, diverse set of interesting founders who are just starting their careers as fund managers, right? What a great idea for a series, right? And that was season six. You can go see that at thisweekinstartups.com slash angel. This season, season seven, we went in the opposite direction. We're only going to interview fund managers who have witnessed and invested through three cycles. Let that sink in. That means they started their investing career during the dot-com bubble and they saw that bust. Then they went into 2000, they saw the great recession. And of course, they invested through this latest cycle and this boom bust period, which is, you know, 14 years. Now, a bit of a disclaimer here. There are not many folks who last through three decades in a, in three venture cycles. It just, they, they don't exist. They're unicorns themselves. And we have to go find them very hard. If you have ideas for people who've invested in all three cycles, please email producers at thisweekinstartups.com because we're having a hard time finding them. But today's was an easy choice. Brad Feld of the Foundry Group, I have been friends with him for three decades as well. I met him during the dot calm uh, boom bust cycle and um, he gives you know his personal thesis for who he's willing to work with in the trenches during these up and down periods this is one of those episodes that you're going to want to download you want to save it maybe listen to it every year maybe listen to it twice if it's on 3x speed or 2x speed go ahead and slow it down get a notebook out get chat gpt out take some notes on this one because you're going to learn a ton whether you're a founder or a capital allocator i bring you brad feld Angel is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. Masterclass. Learn from the world's best minds, anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Get 15% off an annual membership to Masterclass at masterclass.com slash startups. And... The Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub helps all founders build a better startup at a lower cost from day one. Open to anyone with an idea, you'll get up to $150,000 in Azure credits, technical advisory, access to mentors and experts, free dev tools, and so much more. There is no funding requirement, and it only takes minutes to join. Sign up today at aka.ms slash this week in startups. All right, everybody. This is an incredibly exciting moment for me. Uh, one of my mentors, one of the first people I ever met in the technology industry is with us today. His name is Brad Feld. You know who he is because he is a three cycle investor. He was there before the dot com uh, bust and he, and he invested through the dot com era when the internet was nascent. And then uh, through the web 2.0 era and then into this era. But he's not only invested in tons of companies supported countless founders, he's written books and provided education uh, to generation after generation of capital allocators, a life of service. Um, and just a great friend. If you look up Mensch in the Silicon Valley manual, uh, you're going to find him right there, uh, along with his friend, uh, Jerry Colonna. And those were two of the mentors I met early in my career who relentlessly supported me. And so it is a delight, Brad, to have you back on the program. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy. Jason, I'm going to cut that segment and I'm going to send it to my mom and it'll make her super happy. Uh, you know, she should be very proud because, you know, when you're coming up in the industry and you're a nobody, 
And let's face it, when we all are in the industry, by definition, we're a nobody. When I was a nobody, before I had the platforms I have, the resources I have, you always took the time with this awkward little kid from Brooklyn and you and Jerry to explain to me how the world worked. And I, and I just look at you guys like big brothers and incredible mentors. And uh, I'm just delighted you're here. What are you spending your time on th these days? Uh, you know, you, you've been doing this now for three decades, correct? Yeah, it has been almost 30 years, which kind of makes not much sense to me. I, I made my first investment when I'm 28. When I was 28, I'm 57. Oh, wow. So that, that is kind of nutty. Like 30 years is a, a, a hard chunk of time to really process, at least for me. It is. I think it is for all of us. You know, the, like they say, when you're raising kids or you have a career, you know, the days are long, the years are short, and the decades are just really even hard to fathom. Yeah, they go by yeah. really fast. They do. They do. Let's go back 30 years to that first investment. Take me to that moment when you decided. I want to place this bet on this founder um, and what that was like for you to, to do, to be a capital allocator, to decide I'm going to take this person who has a dream. They want to change the world and they need the resources to do it. And I'm going to write that check. Uh, you know, this is back when there was a check writing business, not just a wiring business. What was that moment like for you? My very first angel investment was in the fall of 1994, November of 94 it was in a company called net genesis hmm. that had four founders two of whom run companies that we're investors in uh, today through our current funds one of whom i've done eight companies with uh, since that period of time so interesting dynamics of the long arc and the way that came about was i i stole my first company in november 1993 and i sold it to a public company I knew nothing about buying or selling companies. I knew nothing about investing. I'd never invested. I'd never raised capital. My first company was uh, self-funded. Uh, we had 10 shares of stock. We sold uh, them for a dollar. My partner got three. I got six and my dad got one. And when we sold the company, <laughs> we still had 10 shares of stock. And fortunately, they were worth more than a dollar when we sold it. <laughs> Classic. I, I worked for that public company for uh, a year and a half. And for the first six months, I was very active, sort of, they bought a bunch of companies. So my company was the sixth or seventh that they'd acquired in this very sort of rapid one or two a month kind of acquisition streak that they were on. And about six months in, after I'd already started to do some other stuff with the co-founders uh, of the company who are the co-chairman, a guy named uh, Len Fassler and Jerry Pock. Um, they bought a company that was four times bigger than my company. And my company had doubled in size in that nine months since they bought us. So, uh, you know, grew very, very quickly for a variety of reasons. We then bought a much bigger company. And the day after that deal closed, I handed the guy who was the CEO of that company the keys. And I basically said, you know, he wanted to run the division that my company was part of. And I said, my company is now part of your company. You're the division. And I shifted to a staff job. By then, I was doing a lot of the M&A work with Len and Jerry. I was the technical guy on the deal team. So I was learning about doing acquisitions by just watching them do acquisitions and, you know, doing very specific stuff that they'd want me to do on the sort of evaluation on the tech side. And at the same time, I was starting to think about starting new companies again. I, you know, I'd been nine months in. I'm kind of don't have anybody reporting to me anymore. 
I was enjoying what I was doing, but I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do uh, next. And as part of it, I decided I'd just start investing some of the money I made from selling that first company. And it was before the end of, it was before summer. So it must have been in the, in the springtime, late spring, I met um, some guys that introduced me to the World Wide Web. Uh, mm. The four founders in that genesis. I went to, I went to MIT. They all went to MIT. So I ended up in this place called the Student Center, the second floor of the Student Center, which today is probably not anything like it was then. But then it was kind of like one of the hangout places if you wanted to have a public use a public computer. And they showed me what was essentially a very early version of Mosaic with an application that had been created at MIT called Freshman Fish Wrap, which was kind of a newspapery thing. Very, I mean, it was. <laughs> But it was like you saw it and you're like, huh, this is a totally different thing than what my first company had been doing, which is, you know, PC based business applications. And over the summer, we worked together. And in the fall, we ended up making this first investment. And from that point forward, I made about an investment a month for the next three years. So I made, I made about 40 investments between that period of time and the end of 1996, $25,000, $50,000 at a time. They kind of fell into one of three categories. One category was one where I was essentially leading a seed round and then pulling together a quarter million, half a million dollars from, you know, my dad and some friends and other people and Len and Jerry and, you know, some other entrepreneurs that I knew. Then second category was I was writing a check into a company that somebody else was pulling together a syndicate like that for at the very, we say mm. seed, I guess now people would say pre-seed, but it was the first check. And then the third category was just some random stuff. But that was how it started. Like it wasn't planned. I knew nothing. And I just mm. sort of learned by doing. This is extraordinary when you think about it. Um, this is a time when the number of angel investors that existed in the world, whether it was Silicon Valley, and certainly I think you were probably in Boston, New York at the Boston, time. Yeah. You could count them on one hand. There were only a couple of people who would be crazy enough to write, I'm guessing you were writing 10 to 25 to 50k checks into these companies, yeah, 20, 25,000, sometimes 50,000. And yeah, it was, it was a very um, sparse thing. There were not a lot of angel investors, it was hard to raise that money. I was investing not just in Boston. Uh, but I was in Boston and New York, I had a network there, I had a big network in Seattle, because my first mm -hmm. company had done a lot with Microsoft. Um, so I knew a lot of people in Seattle. So I'd go there regularly, the Bay Area. LA, I had a bunch of friends in LA that were entrepreneurs. So I ended up doing some investments there. I grew up in Dallas. So I did a couple of investments in Dallas. So I was kind Wonderful. of all over the country. Um, and one of the sort of interesting things was angel investing, then people might write one or two checks a year, right, right, they're very selective, like, you know, pick the company, make sure they get it right. And sort of the idea that, you know, this was the one that they were going to make the angel investment. And in. it was all this sort of you know, hand wringing around doing the investment. And I was, you know, one a month, and I was doing deciding it after the first or second meeting. And I was really basing my decision to invest on a combination of the people, like, did I want to be partners with these people? And I thought about it as mm. partners, because I, that's what my first business had been, right? I was partners right. with my partner, Dave. Right. And I just thought of it as okay, now, even though I'm going to be a small owner, I'm going to be working with them and helping them. And the other was what the product was. Did I have any affinity for the product? It, I didn't have to use ah. the product, but I had to give a about it. Right. And that was really, I don't think I described it that way at the beginning, but that was what, how I started to describe what was interesting to me. And when I look back on that and some of the people and the relationships that I developed 
in that time period. And then, you know, you mentioned Jerry. I met Jerry through NetGenesis. Mm. And, you know, the way that unfolded was sort of classic is, is uh, NetGenesis was one of the very first internet companies. It, it actually had a couple of products, grew pretty quickly. I mean, when I say grew, like, you know, half a million or a million dollars of revenue, but it had real revenue. Yeah. But it had three separate products that were totally different. And they got to a point where they had to decide what they were going to do and focus on one product instead of all three products. And so we essentially... Yeah, classic entrepreneur's dilemma, yeah. drowning in opportunity. That's right. And, you know, there was competitors for all three. And so we were fighting on three fronts with limited resources. And yeah. we decided to sell uh, two of the three products. One of the products was uh, what was then we called a threaded discussion group manager. So it was basically a discussion <laughs> board, a BBS on the web. Right. And it was all written in Perl. And it was a CGI script. And it was really, you know, yuck. But mm. it was something, right? And th this right. stuff just didn't exist. Um, and we sold it to a company that Jerry was thinking about funding with Fred Wilson called eShare. Oh, and yeah. a guy named Jim Tito ran eShare. You might remember uh, yeah. Jim from a million years ago. He was from Stony Brook, I think. I huh. uh, lived in Long Island somewhere. And NetGenesis sold NetThread to eShare. Jerry and Fred funded it. And I joined the board with Jerry. And off mm. it went. So that's how we first met each other. If you're a small business owner or you manage hiring at your company, you know that success in 2023 is totally dependent on the team members you surround yourself with. Of course, that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. It's really simple. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find more qualified candidates more efficiently, right? That's what you're looking to do. You want to get better candidates and you want to get more of them. And you know what? You also want to get them faster, right? You want to fill these open positions with the right person and you want to have choices. Well, the, they do this so simply over at LinkedIn because they have everybody with a profile. 875 million people are on LinkedIn. I mean, the march to a billion continues. And they do this by matching your open roles with people who have the skills, values, and experience to help you achieve your goals. So I can only speak from personal experience here, right? I can read the ad, but the truth is I found some of the most amazing team members at LinkedIn Jobs. It works better than any other hiring platform because they have the tools, right? And they have the network. It's all sitting there waiting for you. Some of my top contributors from Launch It Inside uh, were found on LinkedIn. The targeting, the screening, the rating tools, it's all built in. It's simple, easy breezy, lemon squeezy. All of this is why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitor. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. That's linkedin.com slash angel to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Yeah, it's incredible. And this this original thesis, hey, do I have an affinity for the product? And are these people who I, when things get rough, would want to be partners with, I would want to be in the trenches with. Do you still carry that with you today? That initial concept? Very much. And it, it's, uh, I think, hard fought for me personally over a long arc, because in the different incarnations of different investing activity I've had from angel investing, and then getting connected up with the SoftBank gang, uh, when nobody knew who SoftBank was, and then ultimately starting a fund with, uh, with SoftBank and some of the people, and then that fund evolving into Mobius, and then that sort of blowing up in the internet bubble, like going through those iterations, the selection process and the decision process of whether to invest got very complicated, right? Mm. When it's just you and you're the angel and it's your money and you don't have a investment committee, you don't have other people you have to talk to and you don't have a process. And 
eh, you do whatever you want to do. When all of a sudden it's a fund, as the fund gets bigger, the number of people get bigger, the process gets heavier, the bureaucracy gets embedded in it, your ability to figure out how to game things so that you get what you want within the larger firm oh. is a natural thing that happens in any organization, right? So especially- bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah, or bureaucracy, or, you know, some people know how to get what they want, some people don't, or, mm. you know, if things are working, then everybody wants to support you. And if things aren't working, then the pressure is different. All of wow. those things start to play out. And, you know, larger and larger teams try to create systems so that those things make good decisions, not bad decisions. My own conclusion was the vast majority of that was random. Like, it didn't mm. actually improve the quality of the decision-making um, it's not clear that it made the decision making any better or any ver any worse. And right. where I got to over time was the same starting point was really the, this fundamental notion. And I added one more thing to it over time. But this fundamental notion of, do I want to be partners with these entrepreneurs? And by the way, do they want to be partners with me? So for me, it became mm -hmm. bi-directional. There, there's definitely been plenty of people I wanted to work with because, or, you know, I like I like them, I like the company, but they wanted to work with somebody else for whatever reason. The person gave them a higher valuation, talked a better game, whatever. And that was fine. If they didn't want to be partners with me as much as I wanted to be partners with them, totally cool. Um, I wasn't interested in the dynamic where we weren't entering the relationship at the beginning that way for exactly the reason you, you made. Like every, when everything's good, it's no problem. When everything's all f***ed up, that's when it's, you know, that's when it matters. Yeah. And if you don't want to be in there working together from the start, it's really hard to navigate your way through those situations. The second was this affinity. Like I, I really got to that place. I've, I've invested in so many companies that I ultimately really didn't care about the thing they were doing. Mm. And when everything was going fine, it was fine. But when things got difficult and every single company that's been successful that I've been an investor in has had at least one near-death experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, multiple in many cases. Nobody gets out unscarred. Oh, that I mean, is just and, the truth. and when I say near death, I'm not, you know, I'm not being histronic about it. Like, you know, you, you wake up in the morning, and you're like, holy shit, like this whole thing might fall apart. And it, it's no probably payroll, not going to lawsuits, not, probably not going to fall whatever. out tomorrow. But it, you know, like this <laughs> is a this is existential. Right. And it could be something the company did to itself. It could be the financing environment. It could be exogenous. It could be a competitor. It could be a fundamental shift in something that was happening in terms of technology. It could be a sequence of bad decisions. Oh, yeah. Right. Just like an airplane, right? Like you make some small decision and all of a sudden, you know, the, the wings are just tilted a little bit off. Then you make yeah. another bad decision. <laughs> now they're a little bit off. And then the speed and the pitch, like a series of bad decisions can all of a sudden become cataclysmic. It's, That's it right. really and, is. And before you even wild. know it, like you didn't yeah. see it. And then, then it happened. So that affinity for the thing the company was doing became important to me. And then the last was a phrase I've used for probably the last 15 years, which is um, obsession and the healthy version of it. Mm. Um, and there's unhealthy obsession. And I think, you know, it's sort of in our culture, not just uh, the disease of obsessive compulsive disorder, but also just how when people become obsessed with something, but in a non-constructive way or even a destructive way, oftentimes to themselves. But there's a healthy aspect of it. And the way I describe it to people is to answer the question, were you put on planet Earth to work on this problem? Mm. Uh, if you weren't, then it's impossible to be obsessed about the thing. Right. Interestingly, in entrepreneurship, and for many, many years, not used as much anymore, which I kind of like that it's died away a little bit. But the word passionate was the one that was right. used. You have to be passionate about what you're doing. 
And the problem is an extrovert can be passionate about a rock. Right. This is the most amazing. These, uh, these things I stick yes. in my ear because you told me to, to make the podcast sound better. This is the most, yeah. uh, it's just uh, earphones. Like they're fine. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Right. But you know, the extrovert can just get you so believing that these are transformational ear pods. Yes. And that's different than obsessed. Right. And so th yeah, the, those the, are th that those entrepreneur could then just like a butterfly fly over to the next thing they're obsessed with. Now they're obsessed with the microphone. Now they're obsessed with something else. No, I'm sorry. They're passionate, passionate. about something else. Right. And I think obsessed means I'm not going to leave this. I'm not leaving this problem. Gotta until get it's solved. This, I got to get this right. And you know, yeah. I might fail because mm. that is part of entrepreneurship. I accept mm. the reality that I could fail, but I'm going to work on this as hard as I know how to work on this thing. If you have people on your team, you don't delegate. You just don't always tell them what to do. You empower them to do their jobs. There's a, a certain level of autonomy that each person in your organization should have. That's when you really do well. If you have to constantly wait for the leader's approval for everything you do, that's horrible. All right, that was the voice of Mike Krzyzewski. Yes, Coach K, the winningest coach in NCAA history. He's a five-time champion, you know that, and one of the greatest coaches ever in any sport. And this point here about delegating and empowering your team, it's spot on in my experience. You can't scale yourself as the CEO, the founder of your company, or the coach. You need to have an offensive coach, a defensive coach, conditioning, diet, and you need those people to know what the outcome is. Well, how do you learn these incredible lessons? Very simple. If you're a business leader, go ahead and listen to Coach K's masterclass. It just came out. They've also got other business leaders, you know, like Bob Iger, or some really thoughtful people like hostage negotiator Chris Voss. I love his stuff. Masterclass, as you know, is the best way for you to learn from world-class instructors and paying for an unlimited masterclass subscription is a total no-brainer. We just had this awesome insight from Coach K in 25 seconds. Imagine how much you're gonna learn in 10 minutes, maybe two hours, right? Go check out Masterclass today and get unlimited access to every single class. That's right, as a Twist listener, you get 15% off your annual membership, masterclass.com slash startups for 15% off. Once again, masterclass.com slash startups for 15% off. When you started failing, when the investments, those 40 investments, you know, you're in your late 20s, You've had great success, but 40, you didn't hit 40 out of 40, even in the dot-com era, I'm sure. And they start dying and you're watching them go away or beg you for more money or they need a bridge. How did that psychologically affect you? Because there's a generation now of investors who started their funds in the last five years who are now going to go through this and they're watching all the markdowns from this incredibly silly boom that we went through in 2020, 21. And we're going to go back from all three of these cycles in this episode but you start to fast forward okay now these people are going to start going through those losses how did you deal with that psychological terror or sadness i don't you know i don't know how yeah. it impacted you for me it becomes incredible frustration and self-loathing like why couldn't we do this what did we do wrong we should have worked harder i should have called the founder more often how did how was that first experience in your 20s yeah, so I had three flavors of it because uh, of when the internet bubble, you know, sort of uh, uh, peaked and then when it when it burst. And the, the timing for me was those angel investments happened between 94 and 96. Cool, incredible so timing. the timing there was excellent because by the time um, the internet bubble burst, those companies were either 
ex- successful and exited or they had already failed mm-hmm. because they never got off the ground. Remember, I was making angel investments. And there were a few exceptions, probably the most notable exception if we want to talk about at some point was a company called Harmonix that uh, kind of navigated its way through all that stuff. It was a fifth angel investment that I made. So very early in the cycle. But of those 40, um, let's say three of the 40, and I invested roughly the same amount of money in all of them, right? Again, $25,000 was the typical check. Sometimes it was 50. Three of the, the 40 individually returned more than 100 times my money. So if the other wow. 37 had been zeros, I still had a very good return, right? Against yeah. the amount that I did. Of the remaining ones, about half of them failed completely, which is zeros. Um, and then the other half were somewhere between, probably split between, I got up to my money back to I got a couple of times my money. Not so, noticeable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, a against push. the ones that were the big, yes. right? The big outcomes. So you and learned so, the power law for the first time. I did. Uh, although, interestingly, with the power law, too, like there was this whole thing about one of your companies is going to be the one. And I, uh, I sort of didn't buy into that from the beginning. I bought into the or I got the idea that you want a big enough portfolio, but you should have more than one mm. that has that kind of outsized outcome. Yes. Right. You know, having one is is kind of is price of admission if you have a portfolio. But, you know, two, three, four, that's when you start to really see the return of it. Yes. And then interestingly, there's a lot of people that dismiss all this stuff, sort of that's, you know, get your money back to a couple times your money. I always viewed that as worth doing the work for a variety of reasons. One of them being, it fills in your basis. And so mm-hmm. you basically get your initial investment back. And so then your return is magnified on top of that. That was piece of it. The other piece is just something I learned from working with, with uh, mostly Len Fassler, uh, who was that guy that bought my first company, which is you just you just fight to the end. Like, you know, even if you're not going to get mm. money back, you just fight to the end, you try your best, you try to figure out a thing that's good for the customers, that's good for the people involved, the employees, that's good for the founders, that's good for anybody around the thing. Yeah, if the thing ends up being worth nothing from an economic perspective, you still could have impacted and accomplished things. And I'll just give one example. I had a friend uh, that ran a company for 17 years. I was an investor for about a decade. And in the end, the company uh, was worth zero. Hmm. Um, I think at, at the peak, I don't remember what his valuation was at the peak, but it was not hundreds of millions of dollars, but it was, you know, 50, $100 million, something like that. Uh, and when the company ended up shutting down, he wound it down at some point. Um, he, you know, he, whenever confronted with the idea it was a failure, his response would be, no, this was a financial failure. We employed over a thousand people. We wrote software at a time when nobody was writing this type of software for call centers. It really had an impact on how call centers worked. We were involved in the innovation of a couple of things. Again, not financially successful, but it really, a lot of people learned a lot from it. They developed great relationships. We had, I think they had 100, 100 babies born of you know, people that worked for the company over the period of time. So he reframed his own view of what failure was to segment financial failure from like the life experience. And that was powerful for me that 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 was sort of later in in my own arc, but it was powerful because it was a reflection of a lot of the sort of fight to the end, like you just want to try your hardest. And even if they carry you off the field and whatever cliche you want to use, you still feel like you tried your best. Yeah. Um, And that, you know, that uh, doing the best job you can is a reward into itself. And you, you don't have regrets. 
Um, but even still, sometimes I'm just like, oh, well, so, some of them had so much promise. Oh, no, no. Fail, and, fail, oh. Failure still sucks. I'm not suggesting yeah. that it's that it's OK. So yeah. back to the context. So by 19, yeah. uh, I had started working with SoftBank in 1996. In 1997, a group of us raised a fund that SoftBank was the sponsor of. Mm. And um, it took us about a year to raise that fund. We, we then invested that fund uh, in 97, 98, that fund ended up doing really well. It was about a three X net fund, uh, pretty quickly. We then raised a larger fund, 600 million in 99. And we deployed that fund in, in less than 12 months. Wow. And then we raised an even larger fund, a billion and a half dollar fund in 2000. And then the bubble crashed or the, you know, internet bubble wow. crashed. So how much of the, the 2000 fund with that billion and a we, half we was probably, still not we deployed probably, post burst? We probably blew up two to three hundred million of it in just stupid shit at the beginning. Yeah. So fortunately, I mean, we had a big hole to dig out of, but fortunately, we still had plenty of you know capital to invest. But the timing matters because even investing in two thousand, and maybe it was more than that, maybe it was four hundred million. By the time you get to two thousand and two, there's stuff to invest in. Yeah, but it's a it's a challenging environment, and it's an environment mm. even though even with the challenges where there's a lot of people who are very uncomfortable making new investments like you're having a hard time deciding what to do because all the stuff that you put all this money into are you throwing good money after bad in existing portfolios you've seen all these things just completely implode so you're a little bit nervous about making the next investment so there's all kinds of dynamics psychology yeah yeah and if let's, you go back to let's, you, yeah. let's stay on the psychology right if you go back yeah, the to psychology. That, that piece of it the things that were happening for me then remember i said i had three threads one thread was I still had a bunch of these angel investments that I was helping people with and navigate their way through. And in this period of time, there were some that were massive successes. Uh, an example of one was Critical Path, uh, sure. which I was an angel investor. And I think their peak market cap was uh, $5 billion. And ultimately, it was uh, zero. Um, but I exited that way before, you know, yeah. it, it exploded. But it, at that time, by the way, $5 billion was not like $5 billion today. This is no, five billion dollars was an, an enormous, like top, you know, yeah. top five or ten companies in terms of valuation in that in that cohort. Because valuations I, when you invested were typically one, two, three million. That's right. That's right. And yeah. you know, a, a big exit, you know, a, a quarter of a billion to billion dollar exit was a really large exit. Once you got above a billion dollars, it was an extraordinary exit. And if you got above ten billion, it was really extraordinary, unprecedented. Yeah. And even though I had exited and sold my stock, I was still friends with the founders. And I was still friends with some people on the team. So I'd still have interactions with them. And, you know, you'd have this sort of feeling of what was going on. So that was the angel piece. Mm. Um, the SoftBank Mobius piece was a complete cluster. Mm. Uh, and just dealing with that was incredible. And on top of it, I had co-founded several companies in this time frame. One of them, which was a company called Interreliant, that went public. We started in 96 with Len, my, the guy that bought my first company. It went public in. 99 and uh it was a three billion dollar market cap in 2000 and it was bankrupt in 2002 wow. and i was co-chairman of that company with len if you go back to the net genesis story raj bargava who was the founder of net genesis ceo and the guy i said i've done eight companies with somebody it's with raj he was another co-founder of interalliance so in the midst of trying to deal with this complete mess that was what we were doing at softbank and 
Mobius and SoftBank were the, uh, not SoftBank, the big organization, but the fund we had, we just changed the name from SoftBank Venture Capital to Mobius at some point, but it was the same fund, the same people. Dealing with just the mess that was that, and then also the pressure of being a co-founder and co-chair of a company that was imploding. Mm. Um, I think we did, you know, three or four layoffs. We at the peak had about 2,000 people, you know, and at the end probably had a couple of hundred. We bought a bunch of companies and we had to then sell off companies. We were trying to just survive. And if you go to the emotional part of that, yeah. In 2000, the work was incredibly intense through this whole period, right? On the uh, right. 97, 98, 99, it's just nuts. And, you know, I was investing The amount everywhere. of opportunities, the amount of meetings, the evaluations going up, the IPOs, it was incredibly intense. You're working 80, 90 hours a week. And, and the work is in person. So there's this enormous amount of flying back and forth across the country. Oh, right. People forget On that. the road all the time, staying out late all the time, getting up early. Um, it, I mean, it was a, it was, it was a lot. Mm. Then you get into this phase in 2000, where from about the springtime when NASDAQ peaked, which mm. I would say is pretty similar to the moment in time, if you put an overlay with where we are in this cycle, to November of 21. Yes. So middle of November, I remember it was around Thanksgiving break was when it felt like things had peaked and were starting to come yeah. off the peak. I would say it took till the end of 2000 before people were accepting that it wasn't just going to be a temporal shift. So you had a six or nine month period where the public markets came down a lot, but everybody's like, hey, venture capital has tons of money and all these companies are well funded and, you know, yeah, it's going to be fine. And, denial phase of the crash right and so there was like a good solid nine months of that and then the next 12 months for me so 2001 for me was just brutal and it was brutal because i was involved in too many companies and on too many boards so i was probably on 25 boards at that point and wow. so, which was a, an absurd number to be on but the result was in addition to having this daily oppression of everything was up somewhere and it eventually generated a, a, a frame of reference for me, which is that as a VC, even in good times, in, in a company, a CEO has these waves, things are going well, then things are messed up, then things are going well, things are messed up. You always have lots of issues, but you, you have sort of longer arc of good versus bad. As a VC, every day, there's something new that's up somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the severity of it varies a lot. And I think the pressure on the CEO is much more intense than the VC, but it's this continual thing. And so in some ways you get at some level used to it. You get used to constantly somewhere in your world, there's a problem that you've got to deal with. Yes. When everything goes from lots of green lights to a couple of yellows, and then every now and then a blinking red or every day, a new blinking red that you can kind of go put energy against to the whole board is now blinking red. Yeah. And that was 2001. And it lasted 12 months for me because I had so much. I don't think people really started dealing with reality of how bad things were until about the middle of 2001. And that the, tracks with my exact experience at right? that time. Yeah. And then the unwinding started and it really mm -hmm. didn't finish until 2004. And yeah. so you had this thing where 
the the phase that we're still that we're in today for my frame of reference is still there's a lot of you know anytime somebody says hey there's tons of venture on the sidelines dry powder dry powder like yeah except for now instead of investing all that money in 12 months vcs are going to invest it in three years or four years yes the lps who were getting tons of money back so they had to deploy the money back to vcs are all of a sudden going to not have any money coming back to them so they're going to deploy a lot less so there's going to be a lot less new money coming in. Yeah. And so like all of those things play out in, in very uh, lumpy ways, right? They, yes. they don't all, it doesn't all happen sort of in this predictable pattern. Yeah. And the power of human denial is extraordinary. Yes. You know, and, and in, in the case of entrepreneurs, optimism has to reign supreme. Like you have to believe that it's going to work. But if you aren't approaching the problem with a clear head emotionally, approaching the context with a clear head emotionally, and really, frankly, just dealing with reality, whatever it is mm. that, that your company is facing or as an investor you're facing, then, you know, it just makes things worse. And I think we're in a liminal state where there's a lot of deferring reality. Um, you know, there's and there's lots of there's lots of behaviors that are easy behaviors that come from quick prognostications of either investors or entrepreneurs or people that have been through it in the past. And my own deep view, and this is what I learned from just having so many things crumble at the same time, there isn't an answer. There's not like a single you need to do this or you need to do that or here's the the trick. It's very specific to the company, the market segment, the team the investors around the table and what their pressures are and what their resources are. And, you know, is it a company that's being run by the founding CEO? Is it a company being run by somebody who is a hired CEO? Is it somebody it's all who situational? Yeah. So varied from company to company. And when you're in the midst of the beginning of the cycle falling apart, I think everything sort of inures back to normal, like the, the easy, shallow first reaction kind of things versus going deeper and saying, what do I really need to do to set myself up as a, as a company or what does, you know, right. as, as the leaders of this company to set ourselves up so that we have in front of us, whatever the world is, the ability to navigate through for the indefinite future. All right, everybody, I wanted to take a moment to thank our friends at Microsoft. Today, we have Lahini Arunachalam uh, with us. She's a senior director of platform and growth at Microsoft. And she actually created the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the Founders Hub. Why did you create it? Yeah, so we built Founders Hub based on the feedback from hundreds of founders. We spoke to founders at all stages of their journey. So ones that were just starting out with an idea to those that had actually built successful companies just to better understand what their challenges and pain points were as they were building their businesses. And we found three challenges that kind of rang true regardless of where they were in their journey. The first one was that founders need access to coaching and advice to get to that next milestone. Hmm. The next is that they need to accelerate the time it takes to actually build an MVP or their second product or their next set of features. And of course, founders need capital to actually keep them afloat as they continue to build their companies. And so Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is a digital platform built to help founders with these challenges. Thanks so much, Lahini. If you would like to check it out, go to the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, and they have no fundraising requirements open to anybody. If you're a founder, they want to they support you. 
takes five minutes to apply and startups can get up to six figures of benefits instantly. Sign up for the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub today at aka.ms slash this week in startups. It's exactly I think you've stated it. My question for you is you're at that switchboard, right? You now you got the 25 boards, you're the maca, you got the money, you place the bets. How does that how does your brain process what is triage like a mass unit you know you're on omaha beach now and you got founders and it's not just one a week or two a week now you got 20 a week calling and everything's falling apart how do you maintain your composure and clear thinking because i'm not asking for a friend i'm literally going through it right now yeah every week brad i am dealing with founders who have accepted some portion of reality and i'm trying to counsel them Hey, you know, you had 200 people in this company, your last three rounds were raised because people offered you money. Now, you're not going to get that fourth offer is not coming. And if it does come, it's going to be a miracle. And it's going to be at a down round that is going to break your brain of how much equity you're, you're going to actually have in your own company. How did you deal with all of that? All those inputs? Because uh, listen, yeah. I like to play six or seven chess games at once. Sure. But when it's 60 and you're behind and you lost your queen and all of a sudden it's like, well, this is not fun. Yeah, I don't I don't think I learned how to deal with it in the Internet bubble, but I can I can answer the question of how I deal with it today. Yes, but you powered through it at that time. Again, situationally, like I survived. Mm. And, you know, when I reflect on it, you know, 20 something, 20, 20, 22 years later, um, I survived. I'm really fortunate that my marriage survived to Amy at the Mm. end of 2000. It almost didn't. Yeah. And I've written about it in the book she and I wrote called startup life, but I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that we navigated through that. That was a huge sort of input to me to get my together on some dimension, which was to realize that the work that had consumed me was not all of life. Mm. It was an aspect of life, but it was not all of life. Right. And so if anything, that was the thing that helped me navigate one, a key thing that helped me navigate through that time period, some perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But even like in it, Mm. right. The perspective came from a person who I wanted to spend my whole life with basically saying, you know, you're like, you know, I, I think you're amazing, but I don't want to, you're, you're a crappy roommate. Like, mm. you know, I didn't, I didn't marry you to be ignored all the time because somebody else was more important. No matter, I get right. it that there's a lot of shit to do, but like maybe pay attention to you and me yeah. and other stuff. So I would put that one as a thing, which is just always remember that life is more than the success or failure of a business or businesses. Yeah. Any one business for sure. As I wind the clock way forward, and I think some of these lessons came from, again, 2007 to 2010, and that cycle. The Great Recession happens. It's not our fault this time. This is a real estate people playing crazy games with mortgages. We're building really hard, building cool companies. Facebook is growing. Google's growing. Twitter's growing. I did Weblogs Inc., Flickr. There's a lot of interesting companies being built. Everybody's acting normal in our industry. And it was, it was a particularly weird time because, you know, 2007 coincided with another big unlock, I think, in innovation and in the arc that we just experienced, which was essentially the iPhone. 
And, mm. you know, the total Mobile. shift of the way people thought about software. There's a bunch, mm. you know, you can, you can spend a lot of time talking about the impact of the, the iPhone, but that was in that same moment in time, a pretty key shift. For me, um, and, we, and we raised our first foundry group fund in 2007, which was a particularly hard time to raise a fund because we were raising a fund when venture still was not popular. It was, it was a thing mm. that, you know, there was a, an article that was still floating around that was a Kauffman Foundation article that said, you shouldn't bother investing in any but the top 10 venture funds. All the other venture funds don't return any money. And um, it turned out to be completely wrong. Like if you missed the emerging manager segment from 2004 to 2010, you left, you, you missed a huge amount of upside. And then getting into that next generation of funds, um, many of which today are funds that everybody talks about as name brand funds. Going back to sort of how did I, how do I, how do I navigate it today? I view the dynamic as one that the most important thing I can do as an investor for, and I'm going to say CEO rather than founder. CEO is often a proxy for founder because they're mm -hmm. often the same. But in the companies that are later, you know, mid or later stage, I'm typically dealing with the CEO versus the founder, but use, use those words interchangeably or concepts interchangeably, depending on the stage. Yeah. I have a very, very simple perspective now, which is as long as I support the CEO, I work for her. Mm. And if I don't support the CEO, if I get to the place where I don't support her, I have to do something about it, which doesn't mean fire her. It means try to get back to the place where I support her. But otherwise, I work for her. And if I work for her, every CEO needs something different from me. Mm. If I'm a generic board member, generic VC, generic investor, generic whatever, I'm not really serving a useful purpose for that person. Because mm. there's some specific things that are going to be her strengths, her weaknesses, things she needs, th the way I need to engage with her. And so hmm. I focus my energy on that with a very clear lens for me of being direct about what I think is going on, but recognizing that I'm providing data, not the answer. Hmm. In other right. words, I'm wrong a lot. And I think one of the things that is a weakness in the venture industry broadly writ is I think a lot of VCs just don't have the ability or humility or self awareness that when they're making a statement about something that's a hypothesis or mm. that's data from their experience it might or might not be right and if it's right great but if it's not right and it's done in a way where the person that's receiving the information feels compelled to have to execute on it you're making the problem worse not better so you're I, literally telling them how to run their business without having any responsibility of being in the cockpit that's this right. is what you should do. Here's the right answer. You know, you're much better. There's a way to frame it. That's much more helpful, which is, in my experience, in three decades, and three boom and bust cycles, these tend to last 18 to 24 months. Do we have 18 to 24 months of runway? How do we get to that? These are maybe things we should model out and have a discussion about. Well, There's and a I way to phrase it that is not fire everybody. Or you should do this, or you have yeah. to have this. I also right. try to put myself in at best a peer position with the CEO, but actually in a one down position instead of one up position. Ah, I don't explain. want the CEO to feel like they work for me. Right. I want them to feel like I work for them. Hmm. 
And this is hard. And it's hard for the person in the CEO seat to understand that too, because that's not the behavior of your investors. You're getting investors that have all different kinds of pressures, and you have board members that have different frames of reference, and you have this canonical sort of language that the and, and the tension, frankly, between uh, CEOs and and founder CEOs and investors, um, much of which you know contemporary media has uh, uh, has has made a big deal about uh, in a way that polarizes everybody between like who's in the seat running the company versus the power struggles behind the scenes and the person making good decisions and bad decisions and people sort of lobbying in grenades and whether you you know use a extreme example. Uh, like WeWork, and then watch the, you know, however many TV shows that were made about yeah. WeWork. Like, that, that's an extreme Pretty example. But like that phenomena plays out over and over and over again in the investor board member, founder CEO interaction, which is very, very different than, hey, let's deal with reality. I don't know the answer. I want this to happen. You want this to happen. Okay, let's try to figure out the best way that we have the highest probability of that happening. Oh, you want something different to happen? Let's talk about it. And oh, by the way, I think the mm. thing you want to have happen is completely unrealistic and is going to set ourselves up for failure. So let's talk about that. And mm. by the way, I could be wrong and you could be right. So let's make sure that that's an okay part of the conversation too. It's a very different interaction. When, when mm. everything's going fine, it's very easy for either side to be dismissive of the other. When mm. things are not going fine, both sides need each other. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and, and it's you, all hands on deck, right? Every everybody's job function, everybody's contribution is, could be the result in this company succeeding or failing. That's right. At and that the, point. The, the leaders, you know, the leaders who, you know, use a couple of pejorative words, the leaders who gaslight everybody else or grin everyone or view themselves as the only one that's in the position to make the decision or think they're smarter than everybody else or th have no ability to acknowledge that they're wrong. Mm. Um, I think those are the leaders who in this environment get hurt the most and who whose companies suffer the most and who everybody around them suffers the most mm. doesn't necessarily mean by the way that they won't ultimately be successful right and that the other company or that the other type of company will ultimately be successful i use the, the word suffer pretty deliberately it's one of Jerry's, Jerry Colonna's favorite words. Mm. And sort of this notion of creating suffering for yourself and for everybody else that's unnecessary mm. increases the degree of difficulty of having a positive outcome. Ah. Why in the world would you try to increase the degree of difficulty in something that's already incredibly hard? And that can come from just ignoring people's input or diminishing people or not being focused or not having a plan. I mean, it can manifest itself in so many ways. Like I like the term grin all, all the, people, all the stuff we talked about, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's very easy for me at a moment of being frustrated with somebody to tell somebody how stupid they are and how wrong they are and how dumb yeah. this is. And Oh, by the way, well, why did I say that? Hey, Jason, I'm, you know, if I called you the next day and said, Jason, I'm sorry, I called you an idiot. Yeah. It wasn't actually anything about you. I was really mad at Mary. Yeah. And I was just taking out my frustration with Mary and the situation I was in on you. And I'm sorry. If I, if I called you and said that after I yeah. was a jerk to you, you'd probably yeah. accept my apology and we'd move on. Yeah. Think of the number of people who don't have the self-awareness in that moment to do that. 
Yeah. Or who feel like, well, I can't show weakness. I can't say I'm sorry to that employee or that partner no. or that investor that I just, you know, and I'm moving on. I got to just get this stuff done. Not healthy. I mean, in some ways, really accepting reality and then bringing your team into that reality seems to be a piece that people miss. If the reality is, uh, you know, our sales are going to be down 50% this year and we doubled our staff thinking we were going to triple revenues. Once you have that discussion, all of a sudden the pressure has been released. Okay, we know the reality. The company's That's way right. too big. The revenue is going down. Okay, is there a way? Um, uh, let's, let's come up with ideas. The obvious idea is to cut expense, but another idea might be to increase revenue somehow. What are people's creative ideas? Maybe if everybody here is 20% more efficient every month for three months, maybe we don't have to lay off as many people. Maybe if we automate some stuff, maybe we do partnerships. And when you, when I see founders who can move to that, um, sort of state of being where they're in the board meeting saying like, here's reality. We, we hired based on a 2023 projection that there's no way we're hitting. Well, what it, are we doing it, here? it keeps rolling out. Let me, let me, let me give a, a fun example. One that I, I, I say it's fun. It's a hard example to understand at some level, unless you're in this type of business. And I'm sure there's mm -hmm. plenty of, uh, plenty of people that listen to uh, all the stuff you do that are, have hardware related business, hardware related businesses. Cause oh, I know gosh. plenty of your angel investments are hardware is hardware related hard. business. And, and it's very challenging, but, but here's the dynamic. Hey, sales are slowing down because of the macro economy. Um, the supply chain's been a total mess for the last long time. So everything got more expensive. It's more mm. money to ship stuff to us. The parts cost more. It's, you know, shipping, blah, blah, all that stuff. And, um, ad revenue or sorry, uh, ad, in investment is getting less efficient um, because, you know, Facebook's not working as well because of the changes Apple made and, you know, da, 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 whatever. You have all, like this Customer long, acquisition cost is a headwind. Yeah. Right. Your, your CAC isn't right anymore and da, 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 da. And you look at it and you say, okay, and, and my, the, re, the, the current reality is my gross margin is 30%. And my contribution margin, so my gross margin minus my cost of sales and marketing, is zero. Mm. And so basically, I'm losing money. You know, the G&A and R&D of my business and all sort of the rest of the cost is what loses money. What do you do? And there's a whole bunch of conversation, but fundamentally, the starting point, there's, there's two big levers. One is uh, increased gross margin, uh, and the other is essentially increase contribution margin. How you do that in this environment is very straightforward, but very hard for people to get their minds around. For gross margin, your only solution is raise prices. Right. You have to raise prices. And everybody goes, oh my God, if we raise prices, nobody will buy our shit anymore. Right. Okay. Well, you have to raise prices. Well, if we raise prices to sell the same amount of we have mm -hmm. to spend more money on demand gen to get more mm -hmm. customers in the mix. What is missing from that whole analysis is that the cash flow dynamics of a hardware business, which is that you have to make the thing yeah. that you then sell to the customer yeah. and then the customer pays you for it, with the exception of certain types of models that are negative working capital models where the customer pays you in advance and then you make the thing and then you deliver the thing. Kickstarter style. Yep. 
Okay, well, Kickstarter style, style or Tesla bot ordering in advance paying for you. Dell, Dell's business uh, and the brilliance of Michael Dell early on, absolute brilliance, is he created the first negative working capital computer model. They assembled the products basically as they were selling them. So somebody would buy it and they'd assemble it and ship it. And that that allowed them to grow with very little investment because they were essentially using the customer order dollars as the starting point. Now, if you use the customer order dollars, but you never deliver the product to the customer, you got a different category of problem, yeah. right? So, you know, which of course happened on Kickstarter for lots of hardware products where they took the yeah. money, but never they delivered. Never deliver. <laughs> so, so lots of pieces you got to get together. That's why I say it's a complicated story. But the, the, the leadership team that, that sits around, talks about it and says, I mean, you have two things you have to do. You have to raise prices and you have to lower the amount of money you're spending to get a customer. That's it. Mm. If you can do those two things, you can meaningfully improve your business. You can, all the other stuff is going to have so much less impact on you right? in a hardware business. Yeah. And yet, if you look at all the hardware businesses that have been venture backed, that have been chasing growth mm. and not paying attention to gross margin and not really paying attention to contribution margin, they don't know how to do that. They don't have the muscle for that. And if They've you never had to, uh, you wrote a blog post, uh, you know, the day we taped this or the day before, we were just talking about, hey, if you're under 40, you probably haven't been in a leadership position, almost by definition, and there's a few in a down market. Unless you started your company at 20. That's right. You have not experienced this before. And it takes a level of humility that, gosh, you know, I, I could always raise that incremental $10 million bridge, $5 million bridge. You know, some strategic would want to put a little money in. Everyone's telling me I have to grow as fast as possible. And Mm. so all of my behavior has to be oriented around growing as fast as possible. Everything I read, other companies that are sort of like me are growing really fast. My business is better than them, but they're raising money at these crazy prices. Therefore, okay, that's going to be available to me when I raise my hand and look for money at crazy prices. Yeah. Right. Like, again understanding how to navigate your way through now the positive thing in this environment comes back to the emotional question you asked right there's a lot of people that actually can be quite helpful with this including many of the investors sitting around the tables of many of these companies the key though i think from a ceo's perspective is to force the people sitting around the table to think hard about your business with you Mm rather than you as the leader just sort of deal with whatever platitudes are coming your way. Yeah. And use this as a moment to forge tighter relationships with the people sitting around the table, both your leadership team and your investors, because you're trying to figure out how to navigate out of a challenging environment. And then the last is for companies, and there are many companies, plenty in our portfolio that are on very solid footing. Right, they have plenty of capital. Their businesses are working reasonably well. They were proactive in terms of their cost structures earlier uh, in 2022, or maybe they didn't have to be because they didn't get as far ahead of themselves for whatever reason. Like in some cases, the companies actually this environment works better for them because of the demand characteristics of other things that are going on. Whatever, whatever the reason is, those companies all of a sudden can pick up lots of market share in this environment because of the distress yeah. of their competitors. So it's it's understanding each company mm. and as a leader, figuring out what your company needs to do over the next couple of years, assuming that it's going to take a while before things get easier. 
Mm. And I think the generic, this is the emotional problem. Everything's terrible. It's all screwed up. The world is miserable, blinking red lights everywhere. You carry that around for enough times and that becomes the truth. Mm. Yeah. And yet, you know, we are, we do happen to be at least me and you, we're alive. Yeah. We've got plenty of resources, you know, lots of good things. Energy, of wisdom, things. strategies, play healthy, healthy. Right? You, yeah. you put your energy into it, even in really challenging environments. If you can get closer to the people you're working with in that, when the environment gets less challenging, it's really satisfying. The, the state we've been in for the last 10 years is the aberration. Startups have always been hard. It's always been about sacrifice and suffering and trying to solve hard problems. We just happen to have lived through, what, what is this, seven, eight years of just a complete delusion that startups were easy. And it must have been frustrating for you to watch people say, there's no time for diligence. We're not going to have a board. Uh, you need to give me an answer today. Maybe you could just reflect on how you interpreted the last five years of peak weird behavior, people giving millions of dollars to people who don't know how to build products, and then giving them 10s of millions of dollars before they have product market fit. It feels like the entire ethos, the entire playbook of startup and venture capital was thrown out the window, having a good board, meeting regularly, building a plan, giving milestone based financing, hey, we give you some friends and family a seed series A series B, hey, let's just skip that and go right to the series B. Let's give some crypto project a $100 million valuation, give them $25 million. And then, uh, you know, I read the white paper and I had FOMO. So YOLO. What, what was that like when you were watching it? For you? Was that like watching people just flying the plane, like without even looking at the dials? And, and did you see it coming? Yeah, a couple of different layers of it. Um, yeah. There was, uh, in, in our world, I think, for whatever reason, and I say our world, I mean Foundry's world, for whatever reason, I think it's this, the, the bi-directional affinity with the founders. We want them to want us to, as much as we want them. The founder that mm -hmm. calls me up and says, you have 24 hours to make a decision because I've got seven other term sheets. My answer is awesome. Take one of those. It's, you know, yeah. good, great, good for you. Like it's, it's, and, and it's not with any negative feeling. It's just like, not, not the game I'm playing. Right. Um, I don't know how to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Some of that, by the way, came from, again, I'm going to tie back to, to, to Len Fassler. You know, he was in his... He, he passed away at 88, so he must have been late 60s um, uh, when this was going on, 65 to 68, let's say, during the, the bubble, somewhere in that age. And um, there were lots of moments where he basically said, I don't understand what's going on. It's not, I don't understand the internet, or I don't mm. understand these products. It's, I don't understand what's going on. And um, he had the ability, he was willing to say that. Mm. You know, we were we we bought a bunch of companies at that company. We'd be looking to buy a company, and the you know become competitive, and the price that somebody was willing to pay, you know, was five times or ten times more than what we were willing to pay. Not you know five percent or ten percent, five times. And you know, be like, we don't understand. Oh, by the way, you know, 
one of those companies was a company called Exodus, which, you know, gloriously went bankrupt actually before we did. Um, right. And part of it was just kind of some of that stupidity. So for me, a lot of, I would say probably 18, 19, 20, I, there was a lot I just didn't understand. Mm. I did understand the linkage between um, 0% interest rates and people going after risk and the dynamic of that. Like I understood that, but I didn't understand how, I'll just use a simple example that became normative. The number of times I heard somebody say, yeah, we're willing to pay um, in 2020 or even nah, really in 2020, sometime, yeah, in 2021, we're willing to pay a multiple of 2024 or 2025 revenue. That was weird. Right? I'm I, like, that's stupid. Or somebody yeah. who would say, hey, you know what? The new valuations, you know, the public markets are telling us that B2B SaaS companies are worth 50 times you know, f four or 12 months. So we'll give you 50 times next year's revenue. Mm. Actually, we'll give you 50 times ARR exiting December of next year, which is December yeah. times 12. Like, I don't know any planet where that actually works long term. Yeah. And well, we just want the best companies and the ones that are the best companies, are the ones that are growing the fastest and you get this, you get this rationalization. And my reaction to the rationalization was kind of, I don't understand. So that was one category. Just entry price matters. You, there has to be some thoughtfulness to the price that you're, if you're a capital allocator, the price you're paying sure. at that moment in time. And this was complete thoughtlessness. Well, thoughtlessness or just, just an assumption that there was no downside risk. I mean, if you're investing okay. in a project that is a complete raw startup, you have to assume that the vast majority of those projects are going to fail. Right. And so if you invest a small amount of money in those at the earliest stages, hence pre-seed or seed investing. Okay, that mm -hmm. makes sense. But if you invest $100 million, just because that doesn't make sense. Yep. There was another layer of it, which, you know, I, I've been negative on for a while, and I'm going to separate crypto from web three, because I think they really are different things. Mm. And there was, you know, for a while, an effort to separate out the idea of blockchain from it, I just sort of separate the construct of things that are I, be, I become a, 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 a Matt Levine uh, disciple. I don't know if you uh, read him from Bloomberg. Um, sure. Just spectacular. And, you know, his, the, the, the whole deconstruction of what's happened in crypto and his lead up to it over the last 18 months, I think encapsulates how I feel and how I've talked about it to people. And there were a number of people in my world who started, would start saying things like, you know, Brad, Brad, me hates crypto. Uh, I didn't hate crypto. I just thought the vast majority of it was nonsense. Yes. And in the nonsense, well, what do you mean by nonsense? Nonsense is like, I understand, I think I understand what's going on here and it doesn't make any economic sense to me. Mm. Well, let me tell you why. I'm like, no, 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 all you're doing is you're speculating on an asset. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a thing or uh, another thing or another thing or a CDO or a derivative or a derivative or a derivative. Like you're just speculating. No, 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 these have long term durable value in terms of like, well, what's the value? What are they doing? Hand wave. And whenever the hand wave would come and be like, look, I don't need to argue with you. I'm just going to go play in a different sandbox somewhere else. Like, you know, yeah. I, I get it. And maybe I'm totally wrong. That's okay. So it, I had a lot of that in the last couple of years where me too. Yeah, I, I didn't really, you know, I was, I didn't understand. And so 
in a couple of places I wandered in to try to understand better um, and understand by doing. Um, and I learned a lot in the cases where I wandered in and understood by doing. Mm. Um, and in the cases where I just either had no interest or didn't want to learn, I just ignored. The interesting thing in that whole crypto was, why are we allowing early shareholders to create enormous wealth before there's any consumer value being created? It's almost like giving somebody coming out of Techstars, which you co-founded uh, with Amy uh, and the Davids uh, you brought in, if I'm correct in the history of that. Um, just think about if a Techstars company was IPO'd uh, at Demo Day. Yeah, and you'd yeah. be like, here's your IPO. And it's like, I was just like, wait a second. It's, how are these founders going to come to work if they've already sold 25 or $50 million worth of a token to on some exchange to somebody? It, it just didn't make any sense to me. And why is all this liquidity happening without a product providing value in the world? So again, I was like, I don't understand how to evaluate this opportunity. Uh, maybe I'm too stupid. Then I realized, wait a second, I'm recognizing a lot of these people. And this is where like, being a judge of character, I was like, I remember some of these people from the dot com era. I remember some of these people from web 2.0. These people are charlatans. Why would you if this is such a great project? Why are you clearing your bag? Why are you selling your equity in month six of the project? It doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, it, 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 it also became very clear very quickly if you were looking at it with a critical eye, and I think a number of people figured this out that were very smart. Um, and for a period of time, there was a set of people who worked hard to maximize uh, their their own economic outcomes from this. Yeah. Um, once, once you sort of figure out, oh, I get it, I can create something from nothing, I can give myself a whole bunch of it. Uh, I can then get other people to inflate the price of it. And then I can create some liquidity and get some liquidity out of this early position that I have. And whether it was on the entrepreneur side or the investor side, that accelerated um, because of a very classic phenomena that's in the greed cycle, right? I mean, once yes. people start getting greedy around that, all of a sudden, more and more happens. A playbook. It, it became a playbook. I, I was in some of these meetings with normal startups, Brad. And they were like, hey, we're going to do a token. I'm like, what does that have to do with this core business? And they're like, yeah, well, we can raise all this money. I'm like, well, we could also go to venture capitalists and we could right. have revenue from customers. And they're like, no, no, we ICO this, public buys it, we're going to raise this money. And then I'm in a meeting with a lawyer and they're like, we're setting up a foundation in Panama. And I'm like, Panama, but with a between the US and <laughs> South America? The one in Kansas, Panama, Kansas. I'm like, Panama? We, we, we're setting up a foundation in Panama. Why? Oh, it's more, you know, uh, uh, it, it's more reasonable for this type of transaction. I'm like, I, I don't know. I've been on the planet for 50 years and 30 of the year in business. We, we kind of were going with Delaware since yeah, I've been well, here. I, I think, I think though, this is a, uh, you know, what, what, what happened again is, is kind of a normal part of the entrepreneurial cycle, mm. um, which is, you know, you could talk about the same thing that happened in, mm. 2000 where the suspension of disbelief mm. emerged um writ large and then there yeah. were a series of different things people did and i'll just describe two of them that i remember companies did yeah. that with the benefit of hindsight were either 
in some cases clearly fraudulent, um, and in others had no economic benefit to anybody uh, except for the speculative phenomena that was going on. Um, one of them, uh, which uh, I think was most prevalent in telecom, but also was very prevalent in uh, internet media, was essentially the equivalent of round tripping. And oh, yes, AOL. Right. AOL was the big example of round tripping. They, they got um, caught. Quest, um, you know, Joe Naccio, who was the CEO of Quest, went to jail for a long time because of it. And what round tripping and, and uh, for people that don't have any idea what this is, is company A takes balance sheet dollars, invests in company B, and buys equity in company B. And by the way, that equity might be public. Mm. Um, so it's tradable. Yep. And then company B signs a long-term revenue contract with company A for company A's services. And mm. the really stupid versions were when they were in the exact same dollar amount as the uh, investment. People, people were a little smarter than that. A lot of cases where, you know, it might be a $100 million investment, but it was only a $97 million five-year revenue deal. Right. And so on one side, one company is taking its balance sheet and getting a balance sheet asset that's liquid for mm. it and stock in the other company which everything is going up so theoretically that stock inflates also the they in exchange for that getting that they get a long-term customer deal so they inflate right. their revenue on the other side it's a net neutral to the other company mm. and nobody was caring about how much money you lost they only cared about your revenue growth so yep. you watch that play out over and over again it was crazy there's there's some of that that's, that's showing up in crypto with, yes. you know, some of the, I mean, there was clearly some going on between uh, um, Binance and, and uh, FTX. You see it with Gemini Genesis right now. There's clearly this sort of, I gave you money, you gave me money, you know, this money yes, moving here, that money to the right, there. You raised some venture capital, yada, yada. It's, it's the same kind of, it's, it's, it's a different flavor of the same kind of thing. Yes. And you know, in some cases, it was legitimate. In, in the dot com era, there was real business and real reasons sure. for those deals. But once people realize that you can inflate your equity value by doing these transactions at basically no cost to you, that, yeah. in, that inflation took over. The other example that I'd give just flavors that sort of echoes from the past is um, the whole phenomena of eyeballs. And, <laughs> you know, using eyeballs as the measurement of value. Yeah. Um, Eyeballs probably are a little more tangible to us than, you know, the magic beans that are tokens. Mm. Um, but, you know, they are still pretty ephemeral. And there's no yeah. question that the reporting on eyeballs uh, was a highly suspicious thing. It was very easy to inflate whatever measurements you were using for traffic right. at the time. But there was a sort of a whole industry overlay where everybody yeah. started talking about that as a proxy for how your business was doing and whether it was remember mm -hmm. Alexa, the old Alexa, not the new yeah, Alexa, yeah. but the thing that yeah, Amazon yeah. had for people that don't know the old Alexa, it was a ranking of sites and website how much traffic, traffic they had yeah. website traffic. And you know what, it was all kind of bull because a yeah. lot of that website traffic was manufactured, a lot of it was round trip, sure. a lot of it was miscounted. And it was a proxy for something, but it was not a proxy for economic value. Yet not as, a business, as not a proxy for a real business. As investors, private and public, entrepreneurs, we all decided 
to suspend disbelief and decide that was a yeah. proxy for value versus what, you know, whether it's long-term discounted cash flow or how much free cash flow you have or some measure that's tangible in terms of a business generating real economic value. As we wrap here, uh, this thanks seems for that to rant. Me. That felt that, that rant felt good. I don't know if that was I a good. I think it's rant good to get you, it off your chest. No, it's good I for both of us because <laughs> for it was. I have to say the psychological uh, psyops that they were going after anybody who criticized crypto. I would say something critical of crypto on the pod or on Twitter, wherever at a conference, and the amount of people who would say, "Have fun being poor." Okay, boomer, not going to make it. <laughs> And I was like, wait a second, my normal tweets get 50 replies. These are getting 500. And all of them are saying you're a fat Greek balding bastard. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, wait a second, these have a different qualitative nature to them. Well, Why are the you're, laser you're, you're, eyes? You're going deep Brooklyn me. nature, your deep Brooklyn nature causes you want to fight with them. My Colorado nature causes me to want to just say, eh, I'm going to go for a run. Well, yeah, and I'm and here I am trying to explain to an account that's 72 hours old on Twitter has no followers, how like, well, no, my perspective is like, you know, here, like if a this kind of database, like aren't there is immutable, not that's like a not a good quality, you want to be able to change a database if there's something wrong in it. And I'm like having this logical discussion with somebody who's placed a bet. And they're just trying to get every pump everything up. Looking forward here in 2023, as a capital allocator, I'm raising my fourth fund, I'm doing it publicly. Um, I'm investing in more companies now than ever. And I am more excited about 2023 than I have been for the last four or five years, because as great as it was to watch the markups or maybe get some liquidity here and there, uh, companies going public, all kinds of great things happened for me. I felt like people were doing it wrong. I felt like there was a lack of discipline. I felt like the same thing you experienced. Hey, you got seven term sheets. I don't want to get to know you. I just want the highest price. I want to, I don't want you to do diligence. We're not going to have a board. I want a hundred X founder shares. I'm like, you haven't even made a product yet. It's your first startup. All this mashugana, this craziness going on. Now, all of a sudden I'm seeing companies with real products who are, you know, four or five people with 10 K in revenue and they got a seven, $8 million valuation and they want to get to know me. I want to get to know them. We'll talk to some customers, do some really thorough diligence. feels to me like this could be the best you know, next two or three years in terms of professionally for me as an investor, I, I hope, you know, maybe hitting the top of my game where I, I can assess things and the prices are right and people are being thoughtful. How do you look at 2023 for the right capital allocators, the thoughtful ones, and for the founders who really want to build real businesses? Yeah, I, I think f at the early stages, 2023 is a great time to start a company, period. Um, I happen to think that any time is a great time to start a company. Explain. So um, I, I don't think that there's timing. I think that uh, as a founder, what, wherever you are, whenever you are, and you find something that you're obsessed about, that's a great time to start something. And the mm. opportunity cost of not going after it is higher than, you know, going after it at that, in that moment. Like waiting another year just to get the timing right makes no sense to me. So, no, of course so not, yeah. sort of my, my view is at the early, early stages, it's a continual process that um, whether the, the macro is good, the macro is bad, there's a lot of capital, there's not capital, it, it's good. I think from your, from an investor perspective where you're sitting, this is a much cleaner and more in, energizing time to be a seed investor because the, kind of craziness part of the cycle is 
being occupied by something else right now. And I'll talk about that in a sec in the, in the 23. So at the early stages, I think for both founders and for investors that are investing at the early stage, you know, it's, it's a great time for investors that have big portfolios that are early stage investors. The part of it that's going to be hard is the next piece, which is mm. that if you have any engagement with your mm. existing companies, right? a lot of pre-seed and seed investors, once the company raises a series A or a series B, their influence on the company diminishes. And by the time the company gets to a series C or a series D, you have no influence on the company. You might know the founder, yeah. you might listen to your, e- take your emails and respond to you, but there's a different set of people that are impacting it in terms of the investor cycle. That universe, 23 is going to be a very hard year for. Mm. Um, you know, we, we are nowhere close from my perspective to the point at which um, companies have had to deal with the reality of what kind of capital they have or don't have. Um, and that's just going to happen continually throughout the year. If you have capital where you don't have to think about capital till 24, 25 or later, you're fine. Mm. Yeah. Right. Like, like it'll be a hard year, but you know, that's not going to be on your head. But if you have to raise money in 23 as a mid stage company, yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a really hard time. It's going to be a difficult time depending on what's going on in your business. If you have investors and you have the capital lined up and you, you have line of sight to where it's going to come from or your business is working well, mm. really the financing is probably a matter of price more than anything else. Right. But there's a huge number of companies who do not have that going on. Their businesses are not working well. Yeah. It's, it's not a situation where they have a lot of support from their existing investors. Those companies are going to have a lot of hurt. And it doesn't matter where on the capital stack you are as an investor, whether you're early stage or mid stage, that's just hard work. Yep. And then the really confusing place that probably doesn't unwind until 2024 is companies that raised a lot of money, you know, name, name your flavor of investor doesn't matter. And some so of those say private equity firms, hedge funds that got a little frisky and wanted to you know, drop 100 million into a pre IPO company, what they thought would be a pre pre IPO, or maybe company. maybe did that with, you know, 100 companies. Yes. Uh, or several hundred companies. I think that those companies, if they don't have, if their businesses don't work on the money they have today mm. and get to a place where they don't need to raise any more capital ever. Yeah. Those are going to be very challenging situations. There's, you know, there's already people who have raised, you know, structured equity rounds and stru- or structured equity and structured debt funds. You know, the knives are sharp, people are coming out trying to figure out how they can extract the most value in terms of being the new player in the capital stack. If your company's working, you'll figure out how to navigate through it. But if your company's not, and this is, you know, the definition of working or not is important here, Yeah. right? Because growing revenue fast does not mean that your company's working. No, back to those gross margins, back to the contribution, back to your CAC. People are going to start looking thoughtfully at these companies yeah and we're we're back to basics now i mean people might even start doing customer references i i tell a founder we want to talk to two customers i mean we tell we we're a seed fund and we want to talk to two or three customers and we don't want you to give us the two or three customers we want you to give us a list of 100 we pick three people look at me like i'm crazy and they're like nobody else has asked for this you're putting in a million these other people are putting in two three four million they're not asking for it i'm like 
okay. That's them, not us. Do you want us on yeah. the cap table or not? Uh, but yeah, your people are going to get fricasseed. People are going to uh, get wi wiped out. You're going to have people in the capital stack. There's going to be recaps. There's going to be liquidation preferences. There's going to be pain and suffering if you can't use that capital you have to get to break even or you know show good margins on your business. Correct? Absolutely. And you know, I I'm I'm like I think many people in our industry. I'm I'm generally an optimistic person. I think that the last year was prelude to this year. Mm. I, I don't think that last year was the story. Oh, this is a story. Yeah. I think this year is the story. Mm. And I don't know whether it's three months, six months or 15 months. Yeah. Right. But, but I think we're in the story now. We're not in the oh, prelude yeah. anymore. But most of last year was the prelude. Yeah. To, it said another way, my wife, going back to our partners, right? Because <laughs> There is more to life than just what we do every day at the, you know, uh, when we're on these screens and in our Slack rooms and emails or previously on our Blackberries. I was like, she's like, how's it going? I was like, I kind of feel like we went into the eye of the storm and we're in the eye of the storm and now we got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be worse because it feels like it suddenly got calm in the middle of it. I'm like, oh, wow, calm. Oh, we didn't get out of the storm. We're in the center of the storm. A brief respite of. Yeah, you know, in the that, was, that, that was that was called Christmas break, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I got 13 <laughs> ski days in, and here we are in January. You know, first week of January, we're back at it. It's just as crazy. It's just as crazy. But relationships, building meaningful relationships, having thoughtful conversations, you can get through this. And if you fail, and you did your best, you just you brush yourself off. You get back up. It's one of the great things about our industry. We look as failure. If you worked hard and you failed, my lord, you 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 get the respect of everybody who watched you do it, and then your chance to come back again is guaranteed. You said you had somebody you did eight businesses with. Talk about investing of, in the arc of a career. Not all of them have been successful. I, you need only one to be successful right. to make that some, relationship some, work. Some some have gone great. Some have been terrible. And you know, it's it's uh, a friendship. Uh, Raj Raj and I have a friendship that is. Uh, you know, my, my parents have effectively adopted him. I think they like, they like him better than uh, yeah. uh, me and my brother. They like my brother better than me. My younger brother is the favorite son and then me, then me. But I think Raj gets on top of both of us. Brad, you're incredibly generous with your time. Uh, you come on the show. I don't, you, I know you don't do a lot of shows, but you always take the time to come on my show and, and, Jason, and be honest, for, you, and candid. For, for, for you, since I never see you in person, I'm <laughs> happy to, I'm happy to have a virtual, uh, a virtual hug from you anytime. It's basically like we do this for us, and then everybody else gets. Yeah, if to anybody enjoy wants it. to listen, great. If not, I had sure. fun hanging out with you for an hour. This was nice. All right, All right my brother. Uh, yeah, and uh, just for, for one story, one of the first meetings I ever Brad, his phone rings. We're in the middle of like an intense <laughs> conversation. He says, "Got to take it," and I was like, "Well, that's weird because I'm an important person." And he says, "It's Amy." I'm like, "I don't know who Amy is." Boom. It cuts back in three. Hey, Amy. Okay, yeah, I'm in a meeting. Uh, hold on one second. So give me 90 seconds. He walks out. But I don't know if like the, the gutter was backed up or kids in school. I don't know. The tennis court had a problem. Whatever it was, you're back in 90 seconds. And you said to me, and, and this is 29-year-old Jason, you said this to as, you know, my big brother, 37 to 38. You said, she's my priority. And I just made a deal with her that when she calls me, I pick up no matter what the circumstance. And I just, it never left me. This prioritization that this guy Brad had is different than any other person on the planet. 
And I always just looked up to you for that and, and just Thanks. for the way you do what you do, the thoughtfulness, the caring, you know, uh, you know, it, this is a business capital allocation. It's got capital in it. We're supposed to make things triple X. There's a lot of numbers and moik and multiples and TVPI and all this stuff. At the end of the day, you know, people say it's, it's not personal, it's business. It's quite the opposite, is it not? Yeah. All I, this I, is I, so personal. I, and, and at the end, the lights go out, right? I mean, that's it. And so what's, what's the sum total of your experience? Well, the lights were on. And that's, that's what I care about. And I'm fine yeah. with it. Anybody can care about whatever they want to care about. But what yes. I care about is the sum total of the experience when lights are on. And um, uh, if people listening got one nugget out of all this uh, oh, I think the, there's many. stuff we talked about, then that's awesome. And, as, uh, we, as we tell people uh, some episodes, we say, this is when you're not going to speed up. You're going to slow down on your uh, podcast player <laughs> and you're going to listen to it twice. All right. There you have it, folks. Brad Feld, buy his books, you know, just follow him, uh, read the blog. It's just nuggets. Uh, I love you, brother. Thank you for doing it again. And I'll talk to you soon.